Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He then poured into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, you are not clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master. A messenger is no greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. These words tonight, as we listen to them, as we pray our way through these scriptures, Quite literally, I am overwhelmed. What but the gift of faith can enable us to grasp the wonder of these words, the magnificence of this moment? What but the power of the gospel can enable us to believe them, let alone obey them? Lord, we pray that you would grant us the ability to do both, to believe and obey, to trust and endure. In our church calendar, we call this Maundy Thursday, a day in the history of redemption brimming over with glory and grace, the day where Passover becomes the Lord's Supper, the day when the promises of the old covenant are fulfilled by the blood of the new covenant. Lord, we come because it's your supper and because it's your blood. 
Lord, we're amazed that you've loved this ragtag bunch of disciples who uh, argue with each other over positions of honor and who in a few hours will uh, scatter and, and leave you and deny you and that you continue to love them so well and so much and show them the full extent of your love and just washing their feet taking your clothes off to wash their feet, to wash their hearts. It is love that is so wide and long and deep and high, and it is beyond our understanding. It is love beyond how we love. And yet you're uh, telling us here to love one another as you have loved us. And that is the command that we live under, the commandment that we're to obey, the mandate that we've been given. Lord, don't let us forget this night or any night that the measure of your love is not just the basin and the towel that night in the upper room, but ultimately your cross and your death at Calvary. And there is no greater love than that that you began to show the full extent of your love on this night, but that continued through the next day, that terrible day, that horrible Friday that in your death became good, became good because you paid the price demanded by God's justice for our sins. So, Lord, make our hearts become more alive to how you have loved each and every one of us by your death and how you will love us even now in your glory of your resurrection. Lord, help us seek to make uh, fewer excuses for how poorly we love each other and for how poorly we love you. Help us to offer quicker repentance and both of those things. And thank you for the gospel where you continue to show us the full extent of your love. We ask that you would do all these things this Monday, Thursday evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This next song is... And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took up a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it among them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. 
For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter mentioned to him, asking Jesus of whom he was speaking, so that that disciple, leaning back against him, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then he, after taking this morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What are you going to do? Do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why, uh, why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving those more sold bread, he immediately went out. It was night. And when they, had, they went out to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to him, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let not your heart be hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do, do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for that all I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this, and this is eternal life, that they might know that you, the only true God and Christ Jesus, whom you have sent. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these and and these that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest. Later on, see the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign and saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. 
Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid, and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? The day, the day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. can't really put my hands in my pockets. Thank you all for being here tonight. This is the 21st sermon in the series on the book of Revelation. If you were here this past Sunday, we're going to take one part of a verse out of what we covered then. And if you are not here, hopefully this will still make sense uh, to you. I know we have a number of folks visiting with us tonight. But we are going through a series on Revelation that we started last September and will finish this August. And we are halfway through. And uh, this is a very strange passage, Revelation chapter 13. The first half of the passage talks about a beast who comes to make war on the saints. And the second half of the passage talks about another beast who comes to make war on the saints. They're two different beasts and they wage war in two different ways. And right in the middle of the chapter, which we talked about this past Sunday, but right in the middle of it, it says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. Thank you for this night and remind us what our Savior taught us and commanded us and did for us, remind us of what this is all about. Lord, help us to see that Jesus only asks us to go where he has already gone on our behalf. Do this for each of us this night, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a serious night. Monday, Thursday is the last night of Jesus' earthly life. It is one of the major events of his life. This night takes up more scripture than any other single day in the Bible. This week, commonly called Holy Week, is the height of biblical revelation. One third of Jesus' teaching focuses on this week. One third of Jesus' works take place during this week. 
one-third of the Gospels focus on the events of Holy Week. It has been called the most profound week in the history of mankind. Christians claim it is more important than the week that man landed on the moon, more important than the week when 13 American colonies declared their independence, and more important than the week when the fall of the Berlin Wall signaled the collapse of communism. Churches in the West have called it Holy Week. Churches in the East, it is known as Great Week. It is the week of salvation. It is Passion Week. It is for Christians what Passover is to the Jews, a week of remembrance, a week of reliving the events in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, I find it, to watch the way Christians in America celebrate this week. Some seem to put all the emphasis on the cross and underplay the resurrection of Jesus. The themes of sin, sacrifice, and death dominate. And the end result is usually a rather depressing and pessimistic Christianity. There is no victory. Other Christians seem to put all the emphasis on the resurrection and downplay the cross. They, don't, they uh, many times don't even bother with Holy Week or Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday, we rush right to the resurrection. And we end up celebrating it out of context. Like reading the last chapter of a book and ignoring everything that came before. And there's little teaching on the atonement and on the blood of Jesus shed for our sin. And the end result is a, a triumphal Christianity that is prematurely shallow. And in contrast to both of these approaches, we have true biblical Christianity where God sent his son to fulfill the law, to die on a cross for sinners, and then rise again uh, from the dead on the third day to triumph over the powers of evil, sin, and death. And biblical Christianity is realistic about sin and judgment, pessimistic about life outside of Christ, and optimistic about eternal life in Christ. In the Bible, the cross and the resurrection go together. And as the saying goes, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. One reason to take time for Holy Week is because just like Scripture, it holds Jesus' death and resurrection closely together. And not only that, it holds his triumphal entry, his time with his beloved disciples, the Last Supper, the Upper Room Discourse, Gethsemane, his high priestly prayer, the cross, the resurrection. It holds it all together. And even more so, it holds us together. Observing Holy Week helps us enter into the emotion of the first disciples. And we feel the story. And I would suspect that most of you would agree with all of that. So what does all of that have to do with Revelation 13? Everything. Simply because everything that the seven churches of Asia Minor experienced, everything that the church has suffered through for the last 2,000 years, and everything that we will have to face in our lifetimes, all of the sin, all of the evil, all of the death, all of the suffering, has already been experienced by Jesus Christ, and he has overcome 
them all. And therefore, when he says, as he does here in Revelation 13, 10, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, he's not calling us to face anything that he has not already conquered, no matter how bad it looks. He calls us here to two things, endurance and faith. So let's take them one at a time. The first one is endurance. And to understand what is meant in this verse, you have to understand the context of Revelation 12 and 13. This is the story of the cosmic conflict, the holy war, as we learned last Sunday. The dragon appears, who we're told is Satan himself, and he seeks to destroy the child of the woman, who is Jesus Christ. God prevents this from happening, so the dragon turns his anger on the woman who symbolizes Israel as the people of God as well as the mother of the Messiah. But God shields her and provides a place of safety for her. And so we read at the end of Revelation chapter 12, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That would be us on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, we see a, a monster emerge from the sea. And the sea biblically represents chaos and evil. This beast is the one the dragon uses to wage war on the saints. The beast is taken from Daniel's vision of the four beasts in Daniel 7, except now they're all rolled into one. And it's allowed to attack the saints for 42 months, the period of time between the first and second comings of Christ. And since the dragon, now identified as Satan, will wage war through violence and deception, it seems that this beast, the beast from the sea, symbolizes the persecution of the saints by the great powers of the earth. That is the job of the first beast, to persecute the church, primarily through violent means, primarily by using the power of the state against believers. Now we see this in the letters to the seven churches. We're told that the church in Ephesus had suffered for Jesus. We're told that the church in Smyrna is being persecuted for Jesus. We're told that the church at Pergamum has a member who's already been martyred for Jesus. I have no doubt that John's readers would think immediately of the Roman Empire from John's description of the beast from the sea. But I'm also persuaded that this beast is not only the Roman Empire of the late first century, but all human government as it serves the purpose of the devil and as it arrays itself against the kingdom of God. Whenever and wherever governments exceed their proper bounds, when they take for themselves divine prerogatives, when they move against the interests of the kingdom of God, they're the beast of Revelation 13. And from that time until our time, none of this has gone away, but by all accounts has increased in scope and intensity. Suffering, persecution, and martyrdom are not only what the church is called to, but it is what makes the witness of the church effective and believable. 
And thus we're assured that during this time, the church will be increasingly persecuted, just as we see in our own time. And that's why the church today suffers persecution in China, India, Indonesia, North Korea, and throughout the Muslim world. The church will be witnessing during this time, it will be witnessing invincibly, growing in strength, growing in numbers, just as we see today, yet at the same time it will be trampled underfoot by unbelieving nations. And yet, as we see her, the church will appear to be conquered and killed, and yet, like her Savior, she will emerge victorious and never be destroyed. And as I said last Sunday, all of that leads us to the dire prediction of verse 10. If anyone is, he's writing to the believers, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. This is also the Spirit's word to the churches. The beast will wage war against the saints, and as far as the world can see, will overcome the saints by killing them. Persecution and martyrdom are part of God's plan for his church in this age. Because suffering is the church's inevitable path to glory, the saints must demonstrate endurance as part of their witness to Christ. But the church is not merely called to endure. It's also called to greater faith. And again, you can't understand this verse without understanding the context of the whole chapter of Revelation 13. If the first beast of verses 1 through 8 attacked the church with violence, the second beast of verses 11 through 18 attacks the church with deception and seduction. And at the center point of this book, the book of Revelation, John sees visions that disclose the core conflict that manifests itself in the struggles of the seven churches of Asia Minor that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3. And that's true. We're told the churches in Ephesus and Pergamum have to counter the false teachings of the Nicolaitans with sound doctrine. We're told that the church in Smyrna has been slandered by those who belong to the synagogue of Satan. We're told the church in Pergamum lives where Satan dwells, and they have to battle the deceptive teachings of Balaam. We're told that the church in Thyatira has to battle the seduction of the false prophetess Jezebel, who tries to lead the faithful into immorality and idolatry. And we're told that the churches of Sardis and Laodicea have a dead faith and are proud in their complacency. And these churches don't just need to be tougher. They need greater faith. They need to know what they believe and they need to know whom they have believed in and they need to be persuaded that he is able to keep that which they've committed to him against that day. And the world, words of the old hymn, that great day of his return. So why does the church today in Europe and America languish in spiritual boredom, surrounded by economic prosperity? Why are believers today seduced and deceived by so many false teachers who tell us to trust in our wealth and to trust in ourselves? All because this is spiritual warfare and we're locked in mortal combat against a foe whose strength and cunning are intimidating. A dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and his two beasts. And yet our foe has been defeated decisively 
by the one who came in weakness, the son of the woman, the lamb who was slain, whose blood overcame the dragon on behalf of all of those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The call for wisdom here, you have to understand, it's not just a call to be stoic, to put up with suffering, to face evil with a stiff upper lip, to endure simply because you can. Not at all. The call for wisdom is to persevere because of what you believe. It's a call to endurance and faith. It seems to me that we're not only being told to consider how Christ has fulfilled uh, Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, those prophetical passages on which the book of Revelation is built, but we're also supposed to make the connection between Christ as the fulfillment of those prophecies and how these events are playing out before our eyes. In other words, Christ has come and fulfilled the expectations of Israel's prophets. Therefore, the long-anticipated messianic age has begun, and with the coming of the Messiah, the struggle between Satan and the people of God takes on new dimensions as we enter the final chapters of the story of redemption. The ultimate context that we have to keep in mind is God's victory over Satan when Christ dies upon the cross for our sins and is raised for our justification. The question remains, how does Christ's victory over Satan relate to the ongoing struggle with the godless nations who persecute the church? And the answer's been stated repeatedly throughout this book. Because of Christ's victory on Calvary and the, by way of the empty tomb, the final outcome is certain, even though the consummation of all things hasn't happened yet. And that's why John repeatedly speaks of the church uh, in two ways, as victorious in heaven, the church triumphant, and as the struggling church on earth, the church militant. And that's why we're being warned that even though we must face the beast, we can do so with the certain and final victory firmly in our hearts and minds. I'll remind you of what I said last Sunday. The war in heaven is won through an event on earth, through the birth of the child on earth. The war is won through the life of the child. The war is won through the preaching, teaching, and healing ministry of the child. The war is won through the crucifixion of the child. The war is won through the resurrection of the child, and the war is won through the ascension of the child to the throne. Therefore, we do not need to fear the beast. Our victory over him has been assured through the blood of Christ. And while men worship the dragon, and while the beasts wage war on the saints, we fight these foes with the weapons that we have been given, the word of God, both written and living. I was reading today of Dr. J. Sklar of Covenant Seminary was asked to uh, give an explanation to the problem of evil to a group of students at Webster University in St. Louis. This happened just uh, a month and a half ago. And he said that because God experienced evil firsthand in the person of Jesus Christ, he has taken the worst of evil on himself. 
It's not because he doesn't care. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because he doesn't understand. And Dr. Sklar finished by citing the book of Revelation, saying God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, taking away all death and all pain in the end. He said the old way of doing things will pass away, and the things that cause suffering will be present no longer. And he ended by saying this, and that's why Christians hope that every tear will be dried. It's not an empty hope. The fact that it will happen is not just wishful thinking. It's rooted in a cosmic battle and Jesus' defeat of our worst enemies. And this night, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, prepares to lay down his life so that he might pick it up again and so that we might look up and see the lamb standing, though slain, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And with the apostle John, we will experience the words of Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We look forward to that day as we commemorate this night. This night by coming to his table. This is a table of all of his promises. This is a table of all of his grace. And this is a table of all of his victory. This is the table of him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. I invite you to come to his table. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. Help us to focus on Jesus. Help us to trust Jesus. Increase our faith in your Son. Give us the endurance to face suffering as a means of grace, sharing in the suffering of the Savior. We ask these hard things in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. for what you've done in our life. Thank you for how you've changed us, for how you love us. Thank you most of all that your son, Jesus, is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the lamb standing, though slain, who laid down his life that we might live. We thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. We have fun... One final reading tonight and one final hymn and then we'll leave the auditorium in silence.
Where's our last reader? Ah, Dave. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. They, so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of a Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 